Thank you for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. Hello, welcome to The Rest is History. In the second of our special podcast, looking back at the sporting event of the season, The Rest is History Prime Minister's World Cup. Now, in the first podcast, we look back at the first round of games, most of which went entirely as expected. But then, thanks to the indefatigable Jonathan Wilson, who did the draw for us and did a bit of uh, mid-tournament punditry, the draw threw up some titanic clashes in the quarterfinals and we had more than a few shocks. Tom Holland. This was the real business end of the tournament, wasn't it? When you get to the quarterfinals, the, the blood is flowing, the heart is pumping. There's that immense sense of tension in the air. You must have loved it. I really did. I really did. And, um, of course, what the fans are all talking about, um, a clash for the ages, was the match that we knew if it came about was going to be uh, because we're talking about one of probably the greatest rivalry in prime ministerial sporting history, Benjamin Disraeli against William Ewart Gladstone. It was the draw that people <laughs> wanted to happen <laughs> and it happened. Amazing. <laughs> <laughs> Just <laughs> thank you, lady luck. Um, yes, it was a great match actually, wasn't it? It was a great match because uh, who took the lead? Gladstone took the lead, I think, didn't he? Yeah. Gladstone took and the lead. Then, and then, Disraeli came back and Disraeli went into the lead. Yeah, and held the lead for a hell of a long time. Gradually, over the course of the evening, Gladstone clawed it back and he ended up winning by 54%. That sounds quite a, a decisive margin, but it really wasn't. It, that was no, a match no, that, that just kind of went backwards and forwards. So what was really fun about that? Was that was the one match, I mean, of all our Rest is History World Cup matches, that was the one match that really seemed to catch people's imagination. So you got people piling in who probably never even listened to the podcast, desperate to vote. And I could see people on Twitter saying, come on, Disraeli fans. <laughs> that, that was, would somebody put that, um, that, uh, that sex worker bothering bastard Gladstone is about, to, <laughs> is about to win. And people, you know, passions were genuinely kind of running high. People, I, I can't believe that people are voting for Gladstone. Gladstone off at Disraeli. Well, I was, I was, I, I was, um, I, I'm in the busy catching up with um, Line of Duty, ready, it's going out on Sunday, so I'm having to cram in about five episodes. And um, it's, it's very addictive. I mean, you, very hard to tear your eyes away, but honestly, every 10 minutes I was checking my phone to look at the score <laughs> with that and updating my family who had no interest in it whatsoever, but I was still keeping them informed. Now, Tom, for our listeners, uh, who didn't listen to the last edition of this podcast? And you think got no idea what we're talking about. Completely and utterly <laughs> mad. I should say that we, at your suggestion, actually, we organised a World Cup on Twitter where people could vote, and we had a series of knockout rounds where people could basically vote for. I can't remember. We 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 didn't call it the greatest prime minister. We just called it the prime ministerial World Cup. So the criteria were deliberately vague, weren't vague, they? Yeah. Yeah, And people sort of had the day to vote and Prime Ministers went through in this series of knockout rounds. And the Disraeli Gladstone one was the one that clearly caught the imagination, not because people have a very keen interest in 1870s politics, but because it cuts to the heart of the way that we remember figures in history, because it's all about, it's all about sort of projection. And it's all about the kind of cultural baggage that historical characters have. So if you like your historical characters, flamboyant and fun, and patriotic and sort of swashbuckling and a little bit dodgy, then Disraeli is your man. 
Whereas if you like the upstanding, pious, you know, figure of rectitude, serious, moral, all of that sort of stuff, then you you turn to Gladstone, and they still yeah, those yeah. archetypes still have attraction. They do don't they? because I mean I think they, it it the, those archetypes are kind of present whenever. Um, Johnson stands up to confront Starmer at Prime Minister's Question Time. And I think that they're also there uh, 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 in the ongoing clash in Edinburgh between Alex Salmond and Nicola Sturgeon. Um, I yes. think that, you know, these are, if you like, the kind of timeless archetypes of British politics. It's roundheads and cavaliers, ultimately, isn't it? I mean, yeah, going all the way is. back. Um, so, uh, yes, definitely, um, definitely a match for the ages. So we talked about Disraeli in, um, uh, the first episode, which uh, has gone out already, and I hope you've already listened to. If you haven't and you want to know more about Disraeli, do check that out. Um, so let's get on to Gladstone, who really was the star performer, I think. I mean, I, I think he captured the imaginations of sports fans, not just here in Britain, but around the world <laughs> with his his progress, because every match was tough, hard, grueling, and Gladstone emerged from it. Just as you might expect, this is a man who um, relaxed by chopping down trees. Yeah, um, translating and- Homer translating homer this is a man who yes who 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 takes his fun in a kind of tough earnest way and that's essentially at this level of sport is what you need isn't it <laughs> yeah i mean the thing with gladstone gladstone absolutely incarnates the um victorian age doesn't he he is victorianism because he's so stiff and he's so i mean he's the grand old man the g-o-m um, Although Victoria hated him, which is always Queen Victoria so, I mean, said she addressed him <laughs> as though she were a public meeting, and and actually many of his own colleagues. You know, he's one of those characters that he's a monster in many ways. He's a sort of titanic monster. He's one of those characters like Margaret Thatcher or like Nelson or like Churchill or Henry VIII, who's sort of larger than life, that supremely got it suffused with a sense of their own importance and and sees themselves and as kind of. Yeah, and justifies it and carry and sees themselves as incarnating the spirit of the age, which he does. I mean, if you think think about recent books on the Victorians, so Simon Heffer wrote a book a couple of years ago called High Minds, um, about the the sort of Gladstonian moment in in British politics, in which he says this was a sort of high point of of British public service, and and Gladstone incarnates that. You know, Gladstone has this tremendous sense of Christian duty. Um, which is, you know, reflected in all his civil service reforms and, and all that sort of thing. But of course, it's also reflected in the other thing about Gladstone that everybody remembers, which is the, the, the bothering of sex workers, the sort of, the, um, <laughs> the, the uh, well, you call it bothering. Others might call it reforming. Yes. Well, reforming. I mean, that is, but see, that's so loaded now, isn't it? I mean, maybe people don't want to be reformed or maybe they don't need to be, they're not fallen and they don't need to be redeemed. But anyway. As a lot of people will know, Gladstone would, you know, go sort of tramp the streets incognito to, um, try and sort of reform, uh, prostitutes that he met on the streets. And then he'd go back home and he would beat himself. himself. Yeah. Um, and that is a, you know, it's a delicious kind of psychological moment for people who appreciate human quirks, but it also gives you a sense of the sort of intense, tortured psychology of the man. But I, I mean, I don't think he's equivalent of kind of, you know, the, 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 the self-proclaimed feminist guy who then turns out to be a, a sex pest that you might. No, get. no, 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 no. You know, no. it's a kind of trope to say. I mean, he really, he, he, he really did want to do good by the redeemed yes. fallen women. Um, he, he wasn't molesting them or, or, or groping them. And I mean, Disraeli, isn't it, who says that he, he had not a single redeeming <laughs> defect, <laughs> I, um, yeah. which is kind of, 
sums him up really i mean he's almost too his rectitude is oppressive it is oppressive and i think a lot of people i think a lot of his colleagues found that as, as time went on so there's all these accounts of them sort of by the 1890s his liberal cabinet colleagues often the younger ones i mean gladstone is to them the grand old man they really do feel oppressed by him it's like being sat around a table with the headmaster um and yes you know they yes. when he goes when he finally leaves office some of them a lot of them are in floods of tears i mean it's like those sort of scenes in russia when stalin died or something they're yeah. they're delighted but they can't help sobbing because it seems like this great fixture of British life has has disappeared. But of course, Dominic, there was a time where where Gladstone was a young man. And as a young man, he was, I mean, he wasn't just a Tory. He was a, a, a reactionary Tory. Yeah. And he was, so he was, he was um, very keen on upholding, for instance, um, the rights of the established church in Ireland. Um, yes. And of course, in the long run, what he becomes most famous for is his pushing through attempt to give Ireland home rule. And I thought that it was really interesting in this match. I, there were, there were people from Ireland quoting Disraeli, who was incredibly abusive about the Irish and saying, mm -hmm. let's get behind, let's get behind Gladstone. So, um, yeah, I saw that we had a flood of Irish votes, didn't we? Yes. What we didn't have, which is so interesting is that Gladstone has been in the news recently because he's been cancelled by Liverpool University. So his name has been taken. He's a great son of Liverpool, one of their most famous sons. And his name has been taken off a, a hall of residence at Liverpool, despite the fact that the students uh, want him to stay. And a lot of the academics think it's ridiculous to take his name off because when he was a very young man, he basically spoke up for his family's. He tried to defend his family's colonial interests in the Caribbean where they owned plantations. And even though later on, of course, he became this great reformer and a champion of every conceivable progressive cause, that early sort of misstep on behalf of his family has damned him in the eyes of the University of Liverpool authorities. And so his name has been taken off this hall. And I think, I think that what's interesting about that is that it reflects the way in which people today perhaps have difficulty in understanding the Christian context in which Gladstone is absolutely situated. Because, of course, there's a sense in which his entire life is an attempt to kind of gain redemption for his what he comes to see as his early faults and yes. gladstone is absolutely a man who believes in sin believes in redemption and in a sense his entire career is a monument to that and this is an age where people can believe in that now we don't have that sense i think i think that's true and i think actually that's one reason i know it sounds like a sort of st stupidly trivial thing to say but one reason why in this immensely unimportant contest he actually did get people's imaginations because he is a, he is in some ways the figure who seems most out of time, who seems furthest from yeah. us. Yeah. So, you know, the sort of 18th century figures, they're all quite, I mean, I hate to use the sort of jargon, but relatable as Oprah Winfrey would no doubt say, but Gladstone is very unrelatable. I mean, we've completely lost touch with that sort of, you know, earnestness and yeah, the sort of muscular Christianity, yeah. the, the guy who go, who thinks he's got a spare moment, you know, he's not going to check his phone <laughs> or something. Yeah. He's going to go and chop yeah. some logs and translate yeah. some theological treatises. I mean, Gladstone apps, you know, he would be an insufferable person to associate with because you would constantly feel inferior. Although Dominic, um, you will know much, much better than me, but is there not a case to be said that actually Gladstone in a way is the prime minister more than anyone else who essentially creates British politics as it exists now. I mean, he's the, yeah. the great chancellor. I mean, he essentially creates the role of the chancellor of 
chancellorship of the exchequer as it exists now um he 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 reforms the civil service reforms the army all these kind of things and in a sense he creates modern britain and actually more than that tom so he, i i do think that with the civil service reform and so on and the army reform is he gives us a modern state to take into the 20th century but even beyond that he gives us politics in the sense of something that you do that has a kind of mass participatory element so gladstone's midlothian campaign his campaigning about atrocities in bulgaria when he would i mean gladstone would speak to these colossal crowds most of whom could not hear a word he was saying and who would yet be entranced by the moment and that sense of the great politician taking to the streets and addressing mass you know sort of oh jeremy corbyn style meetings it's gladstone who really pioneers that so gladstone creates not just sort of state the sort of the statecraft of later ages, but he creates the electoral politics as well. And then he gets taken to his funeral by tube. Is that so? That is a great I, fact. I, I believe so. I think I, I learned that from a pub quiz. It may not be true, but I'll just oh, smuggle really? that well, in. Yeah. Anyway, so, so that's, um, that, that was, um, uh, Gladstone against Israeli thrilling match. Um, Gladstone ended up winning it by 54%. We then had, um, Peel against Pitt the Younger. We've talked about them in the previous episode. Um, Pitt the Younger won that 54%. Again, so same margin of victory. Yes, um, I mean Pitt was always going to win. That wasn't he? Peel is Peel's corners and his um, his Bobby yeah. creating were not. And of course, that now and very unfortunate for Peel, <laughs> that vote took place the day after the police had disgraced themselves. Um, oh yes, in and, London, and Common. Yes, and yeah. Common at the vigil for Sarah Everard. So uh, the creating the police, not perhaps. Uh, no, it was not, yeah, not um, going to adhere itself okay. to the voters. So then we had. Um, a, a clash between those on the liberal left, um, Lloyd George against Attlee. And we haven't really talked about either of those two titanic no. figures of the 20th century. So let's talk about um, Lloyd George first, um, who, of course, was um, in Asquith's government. Asquith knocked out um, Thatcher. So we've, we've talked briefly about that liberal government. But having talked about Gladstone laying the foundations for the modern British state, in in a sense, the Asquith government in which Lloyd George was kind of the key player, they are really laying the foundations for the welfare state, aren't they? They are. Well, they create a welfare state. I mean, there's no, you know, the welfare state wasn't created in the 1940s. There, there was a welfare state already. Um, they, so, so what's you, Lloyd George, what's Lloyd George's role in that? So Lloyd George is chancellor. Lloyd George is Asquith's chancellor. Lloyd George, um, wants things like pensions. Uh, he wants to increase the, the power of government. He, the, Lloyd George Nash. And he wants to get rid of dukes, doesn't he? Dukes, yes. He, dukes. He's very hostile to dukes because they cost as much as a dreadnought. Because they're being blocked, you see, by the House of Lords. So the House of Lords is Tory dominated and the House of Lords is determined to block the rise in taxes and the increase in things like, um, pensions and benefits that the new, the liberal government are offering. So what you've got in the early 20th century, you've had Gladstonian liberalism, which is all laissez-faire, kind of free market, hands-off, um, small government. And the new liberals of Asquith and Lloyd George, you know, want a kind of welfare state. They're much more activist government, laying the foundation in many ways for what we'd think of as the sort of post-war labor politics and the reason that nobody remembers this of course is because the liberal party splits between these two men and becomes electorally irrelevant so they have no real constituency since then arguing for for us to remember them and yet at the time in the first 20 years of the really the probably the first 30 years of the 20th century asquith and lloyd george are these 
massive figures. I mean, Lloyd George in particular, people defined themselves politically by where they stood in relation to Lloyd George. He was the weathermaker. And so so Lloyd George, as well as basically funding this kind of emergent welfare state, pensions and so on, he's also finding the money for dreadnoughts. Yes. Essentially giving Britain's naval power the ability to hold out through the the First World War. And then he becomes prime minister- Basically, Asquith is is just kind of too laid back. He's hanging out playing bridge with his girlfriends. Yeah. So Lloyd George comes in at the head of a coalition, um, is yeah. a war leader, a successful war leader. He represents Britain at the, the Treaty of Versailles. He does indeed. Um, and so he's a, a hugely significant figure. But, but however, but, yes, yes, there's all sorts okay. of buts. So Lloyd George is the most. So Lloyd George is a mon. It really is a monster. I mean, apologies to sort of Welsh and liberal listeners, but I think Lloyd George is an utter monster. In the last podcast, we were talking about the mountebank tendency in British politics as now incarnated, as surely even his admirers would admit by Boris Johnson. And Lloyd George is the kind of mountebank's mountebank. So Asquith had saved Lloyd George from disgrace in the Marconi scandal uh, before the First World War when Lloyd George- Which is kind of insider dealing. Insider dealing in shares. Yeah. Lloyd George came from, you know, he came from this sort of relatively humble background in Wales. And he always said to his wife and to other people, my only ambition is to get on. So he starts out as a radical. And I don't doubt that his radicalism was 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 genuinely believed. But he sheds that, actually, in the course of the 1910s. So he ends up as the head of basically a Tory-dominated government. He sells peerages for cash. So he's incredibly financially crooked, and he builds up this political fund that he refuses to share with other liberals, which is pretty bad. But what is worse by today's standards is his sexual morality. I mean, Lloyd George, really, and people called him the goat, and he really isn't a man that the you goat-footed would... goat-footed bard, wasn't it? <laughs> Domain Arkeens described him as, which is... Yeah. I, it kind so, of makes him sound a, 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 quite a romantic figure. He's basically a kind of informal bigamist. So he's got his wife at home, and he's got his secretary or his sort of political wife, Frances Stevenson, in London. But, you know, no woman is safe, um, including his own daughter-in-law, which I think crosses various lines yes. that shouldn't really be crossed. So his son's wife. Um, and I think that there was definitely a point in the early 1920s when quite widespread across the political spectrum, there was a sense that he's just a bad man. One, one of his aides said that he, he had the biggest organ I've ever seen. Yes, that's so. Uh, yeah. In the changing rooms, um, <laughs> Lloyd George might win on that if that was if that was one measure of success. Um, yeah, but so that, so that there's all that, and then of course moving into the 30s, there's the fact that he's actually quite keen on Hitler. He is, yes, and I think that's partly because Lloyd George has this his vision of politics. I think is uh, it, that it's defined by people like himself. Um, tempestuous, driven, incredibly charismatic, great men. So that's why he's such friends with Churchill. Churchill and Lloyd George were great pals in the 1900s and 1910s. And in some ways, Lloyd George is a model for Churchill. You know, yeah. he's, a, he's, a, he's a, a man powered by demonic urges, you know, who insists, thinks he can remake the country in his own mold. And Lloyd George looks abroad and he looks at people like Mussolini and Hitler and he says, well, these are clearly great men like me. They are these tremendous speakers and, and all this sort of stuff. And there is some talk, you know, Lloyd George's partisans will despise me for saying this, but there is some talk that had things gone otherwise for Britain at the beginning of the Second World War, had we had to do a kind of Marshall Paytown style arrangement, Lloyd George would have been an obvious man 
to step in. He's unprincipled, completely unprincipled. He, he, like Pétain in France, he would hero. say to himself, oh, I'm the, I'm a hero. I'm the savior of yeah. the country. I'm going to save the country yet again. So, yeah. I mean, maybe we shouldn't hold that against him because it didn't happen. But I think there was always the potential there with Lloyd George and a lot of his critics, you know, his Tory critics, for example, people like Stanley Baldwin, you know, that they saw him as a da- as a dangerous man, a man of enormous yeah. ability and potential, but, but dodgy. Okay, which in a way is kind of what you want in a great sportsman, perhaps. Um, an ability to conjure a sense of danger. Uh, you see him as the Maradona of British. Yeah, yeah. it's a slight, yes, yeah, it's a sort of Marad- Mar- Maradona-esque quality. Um, he was up against Clement Attlee in the quarterfinal and, um, Attlee and Churchill, the two great titans of the, the mid 20th century, they are, I guess, what, what yeah. Disraeli and Gladstone after the, the mid 19th century. Um, we haven't really talked about them yet. And both men have crucial roles to play in the drama and excitement of, um, the way that the Prime Minister, British Prime Minister World Cup worked out. So let's take a break now. And then when we come back, we'll go through the, the, the last two matches of the quarterfinals, the semifinals and the final. And we'll have a particular focus on Attlee and Churchill. We'll see you then. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. It was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? (laughs) Well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy, too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics U.S. wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to The Rest is History, and we are dissecting The Rest is History World Cup, that fixture of the international sporting calendar. We're making such smooth and professional progress that we are halfway through the third quarterfinal. <laughs> We've discussed one of the quarterfinalists, which is Lloyd George, and we now want to his opponent, who is Clement Attlee, and we want to talk about... So Churchill and Attlee, they are, as you said, Tom, they are huge kind of mid-century figures, aren't they? Um, but th- for me... I mean, obviously, Churchill is, everybody knows Winston Churchill. He's on the money 
you know, he's, there's a statue of him. He is part of the popular imagination. And Clement Attlee, if you're not interested in politics and if you're not left wing and if you're not terribly interested in modern history, he's a bit more anonymous, isn't he? But that's the famous thing that was always said about him, wasn't it? What was it? An empty car, an empty taxi drew up and Clement Attlee got out. Right. Which is Churchill is supposed to have said and never said. Yeah. Churchill didn't okay. say it. He didn't because say it. Churchill was things. a great admirer of him. In many he ways. was indeed. He was, uh, so praised him the, as a patriot. Yeah, there's a story that a tor- young Tory Tyro comes to Chartwell and sort of hoping to curry favour with Churchill, um, sort of lays into Attlee. And Churchill says, you know, if you ever want to come to Chartwell again, you will never say such silly things about uh, – you, oh, you'll never talk about silly old Attlee in my presence. In my presence, Mr. Attlee is a great man and a patriot. And, of course, Attlee said incredibly warm things about Churchill when Churchill died, which I always think is one of the yeah. – you know, if you're a Churchill defender – I mean, that should be one of the sort of first things that you bring out, that when he died, Attlee said, we've lost the greatest Englishman of our time, in fact, the greatest citizen of the world of our of our time. Well, I suppose they were they were both in the coalition, weren't they, in the, the, that won the war? So in that sense, right. kind of comrades. So, so um, Attlee is, he goes to Halebury, which is the public school that um, essentially exists to send people to run India. Yes, so the exactly. British Empire, um, and he always Imperial he's Services always, College. Yeah, yes, and he he's 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 very fond of it. And then he um, at this point, I'm guessing he's just a kind of you know he's a Tory guy, Tory yeah. young man. Um, and then he goes to the East End and he has a, sort a of kind conversion. of Damascene conversion. Yes, he does, and he. So Attlee has this extraordinary, uh, John Bew has written, who's Boris Johnson's foreign yeah. policy kind of advisor. Citizen has Clem. This, has written this fantastic biography of Attlee. Attlee is a fantastically interesting and admirable man because, as you say, he's completely conventional, public school boy, Tory. Um, but he does have British a sense Empire of- moustache and yes, pipe he does and have the, loves cricket, he, not very good at it. I a lot of fellow feeling for him. The, <laughs> You don't have the moustache, though, Tom. I think you'd look. No, I don't. I don't. I don't. But I, I, um, I think our cricket record is very similar. I think you'd look very Terry Thomas. Um. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> um, um, anyway, that's a bus by the bus. Shower. Um, <laughs> so Attlee, uh, he he has this incredible ethic of public service, and um, he does. He goes to the East End of London, and he gets involved with looking after kind of poor kids and that that fuels his socialism he's a christian socialist without the christianity as he says himself later on you know um i I believe in all the ethics i can't stand the mumbo jumbo and that's his sort of driving passion but at the same time he is uh, the patriotism with atlee is is incredibly deep-seated and and that's partly i think because you know he fights in the first world war he's He's a major isn't he major atlee he fights in gallipoli um, he's shot in the buttocks, I think it is. Uh, he's the second man out of Suvla Bay at uh, Gallipoli when they are evacuated. He then fights in Mesopotamia and he's invalided out. So he is somebody with an impeccable war record. That's why people call him Major Atlee. I mean, people in those days did trade on that war yeah. record. And, um, and that's what has always endeared him, I think, to people on both sides of the political spectrum. So somebody else who's very warm about Atlee is Margaret Thatcher. In her memoir, 
she says what a tremendous prime you know what a, she didn't agree with him in his policies but what a tremendous man he was great labor man great labor and she actually says that in the 1979 election when she's running for her first term as prime minister when she's standing um then she says she appeals to labor people who voted for Attlee. she says right. you know come and vote for and- me because of that reason so 1979 is seen as a kind of key transformative election and Thatcher as a transformative prime minister. And Attlee has, a, you know, I mean, he has a similar status. So 1945 yeah. election and the Labour government that comes in. Th- yeah. This is, this is what Attlee's reputation is founded on. That Absolutely. he well, is this the is, man yeah. who presides over the creation of the welfare state. I, I guess that we've already looked at the, the role that Gladstone and Lloyd George kind of played in that. So it's slightly more complicated than Attlee comes in and it creates it from scratch. But his role in creating the National Health Service and the welfare state is is key, isn't it? That's the key. Those three letters, NHS. And the NHS has obviously become a kind of secular religion for um, British people. Now, British listeners, um, We'll take that for granted. Our overseas listeners will think at this point the British are demented to worship a health service. But of course we do. I mean, it was in the Olympic ceremony, opening ceremony in 2012. And Atlee's status as the founder of the NHS or as the person who presided over its foundation has enshrined his place in political legend. And I think the other thing, Tom, is that Labour have not had since then a prime minister of which of whom Labour activists are actually terribly proud. So there was Harold Wilson in the 1960s and 70s, but by the time he left, a lot of his own activists thought he was a crypto Tory. Tony Blair, who, you know, his reputation is well known. And Attlee is the one kind of shining light. So Attlee has been... But... Go on. But, but, um, Attlee is, you know, Major Attlee, and he he's he plays a key role in setting up NATO, he yeah, sponsors the British nuclear deterrent. Um, he essentially presides over partition. I mean, he, he yeah. So there are there are blots on his escutcheon. Well, seen I mean, from I would, seen from the left, from the perspective seen from of the, the left, left. Yes, absolutely. And I think at the, I mean, he wasn't terribly popular with his own left actually when he was prime minister in the nineteen forties and fifties. And actually, the funny thing about Attlee is that until about the nineteen nineties, if you had said to people who are great prime ministers, Attlee wouldn't really have featured. And in fact, um, on the left and among a lot of sort of left-leaning academics, a lot of the talk about the Attlee government was wasted opportunities, roads not taken. Right. Yeah. Yeah. um, uh, uh, Anthony Howard, the editor of the late, it was at one point editor of the New Statesman, wrote an essay about the that period in which he said it was the greatest restoration of traditional values since 1660 of 1945. So this is is classic Sandbrook punditry. Um, <laughs> radical, radical left-wing figures are, are rebranded as conservatives, <laughs> but, yeah. but with, with the case of Attlee, I can, you know, he is clearly in some ways a very conservative, small C figure, as well as yeah. a, a, a very radically socialist figure. Yeah. Yes. Personally, he's very conservative, isn't he? I mean, his love of, so for example, they say to him, would you like a ticker tape machine in number 10? And he has Dominic, it. So being the, interested in cricket is not, doesn't mean you're conservative. It just means you're interested in cricket. Oh, I'm not sure about that, Tom. I'm not sure because about that. Because, of course, right, he, yes. he used the ticket tape to, to, to get the cricket to check, scores. Check their cricket scores. And, of course, nothing mattered more to him than his old school tie and Haleybury. Right. You know, you mentioned so, the school. And we remember the school. We don't normally remember Prime Minister's schools. We remember it with him because it mattered so much to him. So, um, a classically British 
mix of the conservative and the, and the radical yeah. um yeah. but perhaps because to, to a degree there is a sense of anonymity about him he's not a flamboyant figure and so therefore as he as as the real Attlee fades from the historical memory he can become a kind of symbol which perhaps is is the role that he's playing here that he's a symbol of the nhs he's a symbol of i think of so. the welfare state i think he's actually you know who he reminds me of tom george orwell they're the same period yeah 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 and they're both you know you, there are cases to be made from them from both sides of the spectrum. Conservatives hold up Attlee as their sort of, you know, patriotic blue labor, labor man, all yeah. that blue labor, exactly. And Ken Loach and people of that tendency talk about the spirit of 45 and the foundation of the NHS. So everybody can find in the sort of the yeah. romanticized Clement Attlee. So it's not surprising that, that Attlee should have beaten Lloyd George quite decisively, 64%. Yeah. Because yeah. Lloyd George, I think despite I, th- I mean, I think Lloyd George's achievements in in laying the foundations for the welfare state, in as a, as a war leader who who guides Britain through the First World War. I mean, I think those are immense achievements. But <laughs> there's quite a lot on the, in in you know to go against that, and you can see that that yeah. that might drag him down. Whereas Attlee's a, kind, a bad, he's a bad man. man. Whereas <laughs> no one would say that that that, that Attlee was a bad man. So um, Attlee went through to the um, semi-final. So so we had Pitt the younger went through. We had Attlee go through. We had Gladstone go through, and then the the last um, quarterfinal was Asquith, who we've talked about in the previous episode against Winston Churchill, the number one seed. And really, yeah. Churchill is the last person that we've got to talk here. He's unsurprisingly he plays a key figure in the drama of this sporting occasion yeah um, he he wins against asquith but interestingly not by as much as you might suspect because he wins 58 percent. yeah and that was a sign of what was coming the next round right because i yes. mean at that point when i saw that churchill had only just beaten asquith i sort of thought then well churchill is going to find it very very hard to go through to the final once he's into the semis so yes. he was okay drawn- so let's 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 yeah, yeah so he's drawn against gladstone so atlee is against pitt and i think unsurprisingly uh, no one will be surprised that he he beats pitt goes yeah. by 65 percent. so atlee goes into the final gladstone against churchill was a, a, another titanic battle the grand old man you know what a run he's had these yeah. classic sporting encounters <laughs> and it, it was always going to be huge against churchill and ultimately as he'd done in the match against Israeli, he comes through as the shadows are lengthening over the stadium and he ends up winning 55%. So Churchill is knocked out. So it's both the same the pattern, two, exactly the same pattern. Both the two great war leaders, yeah. Pitt the Younger and oh, Churchill, yes. yeah, yeah, are knocked point. out. The two great reformers, Attlee and Gladstone, go through. So let's talk about Churchill because Churchill, obviously, even when he's not making it to the final, is what everyone's talking about. <laughs> <laughs> yes. He's Brazil, isn't he? He's, he's the Brazil of this, um, in this analogy. Now, I think the thing with Churchill is that Churchill is in a different league from everybody else in the entire tournament. And actually, when we advertised the tournament, the historian Alan Allport, who's written, started this fantastic project writing sort of social histories of the Second World War. He, he put a message on Twitter and said, you know, if there's a, if there's a rotund fellow in the draw with a bow tie, there's no <laughs> point running the tournament because everybody knows that Churchill will win because of course, Churchill, wins every poll um, done normally to decide the greatest Britain. When the BBC did their huge landmark Great Britain's poll in 2002, I think Churchill won it pretty comfortably. He's Wasn't on the John money. Lennon at nine? John Lennon was ahead of all sorts of people who should have been. <laughs> but mind you, Princess Diana was very high. Yes, she, um, yes they were. But um, it was, yeah, Churchill was number one, and very clearly it was obvious that Churchill was going to win. And um, 
you know, Churchill is one of the few children know Churchill's name. People who have no interest in history whatsoever know of Churchill, and Churchill is seen abroad as a symbol of Britishness. But of course, okay. So now, on that, on that, Dominic, he, on that, yeah. Could I, could I just read a couple of of tweets? Yeah, do. actually, I'm just going to read one tweet here. Um, this is on the the Gladstone Churchill, and it's from uh, Capel Loft who's a big Churchill fan. He says, seriously, the voters in this competition are nuts. Gladstone repealed the soap tax, introduced competitive civil service exams and destroyed his party over home rule. Churchill uh, played the leading role in saving Britain from Nazi domination. No contest in a sane world. Yes. You got that a lot. It's got a point of view, isn't it? Yeah. Um, And I think this is the funny thing with Churchill. Churchill has this single signal achievement. That is that for a lot of people transcends all else, not least because it's the foundational moment of modern British identity. You know, it's our moment of sainthood. It's we stood alone against the Nazis and saved the world, which is kind of drummed into every freeborn Briton. But is it anymore? I mean, because that's that's what's so interesting about this result is that it does suggest. I mean, I know that 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 people on Twitter almost invariably are to the left of of um the political center of gravity um beyond twitter but I, I it it is interesting that he seems to have become an absolute lightning rod in the ongoing culture war and whenever there's some protest people end up yeah. <laughs> trying to you know the police end up defending the statue whether they need to or not so even um you know the you mentioned the the the, the protests um at, at, the, the way that the police handled um, the commemoration of Sarah Everard at, at, in, in Clapham Common, somehow that ended up with police standing in a ring around Churchill's statue. And yeah. there's something clear, clearly, it's almost, I guess, divorced from Churchill as a historical figure. And he's become a myth. You know, the idea that Churchill um, basically saved the world, that's, that's one myth. I mean, he clearly plays an absolutely key decisive role, but I don't think mean, he doesn't win the war single handedly. And then on, on the other side, the idea that he sends tanks in to mow down innocent miners yeah. and, and protesters yeah. and that he's responsible for the Bengal famine, which is the other much spoken about charge against him. Now, I, I'm no expert on this, but my, my brother is and knows everything about shipping lanes and shipping requirements in the second world war assures me that churchill is not it assures me but churchill was not responsible for 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 the bengal famine but it's clearly not responsible for it i mean yeah i mean it's obviously a ludicrous claim i mean you're not responsible for a famine that's taking place you might be he might be criticized for for your handling of it but i mean to be fair but i think i think i think in certain way i mean you really he churchill killed three million people or whatever you see you read that all the time now tom and that seems as at least as big a myth. So on both sides, what people are arguing about are essentially untrue myths that nevertheless are rooted clearly in in what makes Churchill such a fascinating character, that he is the guy who, more than any other political figure, ensures that Britain fights on against the Nazis and is able to fight on against the Nazis. He is also very much a figure who believes in the British Empire and definitely is has a kind of racist sense of the superiority of i guess europeans but specifically the british yeah. um and both of those are incredibly resonant in in the world of 2021 well, see i this is the point where my my sort of jolly facade crumbles and my true identity as a author of intemperate tirades will in the um, right will, okay so give emerge. us an intemperate tirade well i think um well actually the, if i can sort of reassemble my facade um 
I think Churchill has become shorthand for Britain and Britishness and for and for British history, actually. So right. the attack yeah. on a Churchill statue is is not an attack so much on Churchill himself, but it's an attack. It's an almost kind of Oedipal attack on um on Britain and Britain's sense of itself and its sense of its It's own. an attack on gammons, isn't it? I mean, <laughs> I mean basically I, I, I don't think that protesters really care about Churchill, but they know that attacking him annoys people that they want to annoy and yeah, say that's people why like they me. do it. People like me. <laughs> <laughs> Middle England, the voice of Middle England. Yes, exactly. Um, yeah, but also people abroad. Because uh, you, you said this, you know, that what's been interesting about this is the perspective of, of people outside Britain. So um, so, so Churchill beats, Ath- um, uh, Churchill beats uh, um, Asquith, goes Asquith. into the semi-final. He, he, he loses to Gladstone. Yeah. So it's, it's a Gladstone... Um, Atlee final. Uh, and we had this um, uh, the tweet from David de Zirek from um, Israel, um, who, who says this about Atlee. Um, he may have been great domestically, but he and especially Bevin are badly remembered here in Israel for refusing to remove limits on Jewish immigration after the war. By the way, to you in the UK, history is a spectator sport. To us in Israel, it is participatory. But that's kind of interesting. So that's the yeah, the perspective there is is that Atlee is not actually goody that he 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 he. Well, if, oh, okay, restrictions partition. on Jewish immigration. How many but people then, died but then, in partition, Tom? Yeah, so, Sorry, so partition on. and uh, partition and yeah. So, but he then goes on to say, and I, I and I tweeted back to him and said, well, who do you want to win? Um, and David Zurich says, Churchill, exclamation mark. I'm shocked that he didn't. And then he says rather touchingly, by the way, I am the link between Churchill and Kennedy. When I met Ben Gurion in Montreal in 1961, see my pick. And there's a picture of a little boy with Ben Gurion. It was between his visit to his old friend Winston and his then secret meeting in New York with JFK. So wow, what a great, that's kind, that is that's a great, kind of wonderful. It's yeah, a wonderful thing lovely. to have, isn't it? Oh, no. And I think actually what that captures, Tom, I, I agree with you. I mean, to people abroad, Unless they're incredibly politicised, it probably does seem demented not to pick Churchill because abroad Churchill is a symbol of Britishness, and he's one of those few characters who has imprinted himself on the on the imagination of the planet. So to not choose him, to to I think you can tell from the responses we got on Twitter to overseas fans of this podcast seem like a demented act of kind of national self harm and sort of self punishment. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Never it's national self harm. I hope I'm not. I hope I'm, not underst- I'm, not, uh, I'm not understating that, am I, Tom? <laughs> you heard it here. The stakes yeah. are set. People say that sport isn't isn't important, but <laughs> but clearly the result in this, Dominic, has cast it as an act of national self harm. Um, well, no, <laughs> never. No, I think that's entirely reasonable, Dominic, and I can see why the Daily Mail employ you. <laughs> But actually, no, it's, in a way, it was fun that Churchill didn't make it. Had he won, it would have been predictable, wouldn't it? It would be very boring. Whereas it was actually great to have, I think, particularly to have Gladstone running as, we got a lot of people talking about Victorian arguing about civil service examinations and soap taxes. <laughs> and that's great to see, isn't it? The fans, the, you know, they can't go to the pub and argue about it, but they can do it online. Uh, wonderful, wonderful to see. I suppose the disappointment for me was that the final was a bit of a non-event because you knew that as soon as Attlee got to the, I think an Attlee-Churchill final, would have got generated greater discussion because probably more Churchill aficionados would have piled in. Piled in Whereas yeah. as it was, poor old Gladstone, because his party, the Liberal Party, or the Liberal Democrats as it now is, has basically become, in electoral terms, a little bit of an irrelevance. He doesn't. He didn't really have a constituency batting for him. Whereas Attlee, clearly, if you were at all left-leaning, Attlee was your man yeah. from the start of the tournament to the end. 
I mean, I have to say, I, I, uh, I'm very happy to see both of them win. I think they're both kind of admirable, heroic. Yeah figures who achieved amazing things but purely um from the sporting sense the grand old man had had such an amazing run uh i did want to see him go all the way but um, he was the romantic favorite by the end wasn't uh, he the romantic favorite i think the, i think i think the favorite of the sports fan perhaps rather than the politics fan. <laughs> um but anyway i thought it was a great tournament um really really enjoyable um I, as i say i did genuinely in some matches find myself checking the score at regular intervals um and i think that we should do something like this again don't you i do now we've had various discussions about future world cups so jonathan wilson did the the great sports writer did the draw for us and he did the punditry and there was talk of a world cup of wilson's um uh, that would be good wouldn't it wilson pickett against harold wilson he could be both pundit and participant um but i think maybe we there's talk of a world cup of gods now, I think that would be a fun World Cup. What do you think about World Cup of Gods? Well, who wouldn't like to see Athena against Odin yeah. in the quarterfinal? Yeah, it'd be a thriller. Think about Lockie Thor. Oh, yeah, I mean, that, let's let's do that. So let's let's aim to do that in what a couple of months or something. Exactly. So keep listening to the podcast, and then we'll surprise yeah. you with the World Cup of with the World Cup of uh, ancient gods. I, I think we should disallow gods who are currently worshipped. That I think would, that would uh, be sensible. Yes. <laughs> that would be it. Would be an unwise, an unwise venture. Um, yes, I think I think that would be a very so sort of move. defunct gods. Yeah. Okay. Well, it's all been very exciting. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. We will be back uh, in a couple of days now, won't it? Um, what have we got coming up, Dominic? Remind me. Uh, we've got um, uh, we got we got Ben McIntyre, of course. We've got Ben McIntyre and spies. We've got Ben now. McIntyre talking it, yes. about spies. Yes. So so. Lots of excitement there. Um, and in a couple of months, perhaps, we'll be back with the World Cup of Ancient Gods. Thank you very much for listening. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, please sign up at restishistorypod.com. Dot com. That's restishistorypod.com. Dot